Welcome to Long Hill Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast where you can listen to our latest sermons filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're in the car, on the couch, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. One of my favorite pastimes is thinking about the idea of time travel. As I would listen to music from decades before I was born, I would think, what if I could go back in time and write the greatest record of all time with my hit songs, Bohemian Rhapsody, Stairway to Heaven, Free Falling, What a Wonderful World, all the single ladies. I spent hours planning out what cities I would need to be in and when and how if I could do that now and come back to my present reality, how my life would be radically different playing sold out stadiums and concerts with my hit songs. And if you didn't think I was weird before, this little look inside my brain should clarify any doubt you had. But the idea of time travel is not unique to me, seeing as Hollywood's been monopolizing on it for years with films like Back to the Future, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, the novel The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, Avengers Endgame, all of them have time travel within them. And the big idea with a time travel film is that people from the present need to go back to the past to fix or to alter something so that the future is changed. If you can go back to another time connected to our present reality, all you have to do is change a few things so that your future will be transformed by a few simple modifications to the past. And the notion of time travel got me thinking about the past, the present, and the future. And how they're all connected, that's the thing that's always consistent with these works of fiction, is that the past is always connected to the present, and the present is always connected to the future. What you do in one will affect the other, which will affect the other. And today, as we continue in our Power of Belief series, we're going to come to the focal point of the Christian faith and its past, its present, and its future implications. And that focal point is the resurrection. Let's open in a word of prayer. God, would you teach us by your spirit how great you truly are this morning? We pray that you would open our eyes and so that we would see marvelous things, not only within your word, but with who you are. We pray this by the power of the spirit. Amen. Now, today, as we discuss the idea of the resurrection, there's three perspectives we're going to look at it from. We're going to look at it in the past. We're going to look at it in the present. And we're going to look at it in the future. And the big idea that sums up the resurrection is this. The resurrection is a past event changing present circumstances that have future implications. The resurrection is a past event changing present circumstances that have future implications. Now, when we think of the resurrection in the past, we, of course, are talking about the claim of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The Apostles' Creed states it like this, that he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is one of the two miracles that are captured in all four Gospels in some way. The accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John differ on the content and the perspective, but not on the information and the reality that Jesus was dead and is now alive. Now, biblical and Jewish oral tradition hold that Jesus is not the first human to die and be resurrected. 
the widow's son at Zarephath in 1 Kings, the Shunammite woman's son with Elisha in 2 Kings 4. In 2 Kings 13, we see a man at Elisha's tomb, the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus in John 11. Some even believe that Paul in Acts chapter 14 was dead and was resurrected. And while Jesus may not be the first human to be resurrected, he is the first one to predict it. The Gospels are filled with Jesus' teaching and predicting not only his death, not only the precise circumstances of that death, but that that death would be short-lived, three days to be exact, as he mentions in Matthew 16. And the claim that Jesus died, was buried, and is resurrected is a challenge. It challenges the physical empires of Rome because it says that the opposing political power has lost. It challenges the religious leaders of that day that put him to death because it says the religious system has no control. It challenges the laws of physics because according to science, dead things don't become undead. It challenges the idea that there is no life after death. It also challenges the idea that Jesus didn't mean what he said. Some say that Jesus didn't mean what he said. Well, what he meant was this. He didn't actually mean that. Well, he said he would die. He said he would resurrect. That claim says otherwise. Now, some in secular society, obviously, but also within Christian circles, adhere that Jesus' resurrection was not a physical resurrection, but a spiritual one. Yes, some of disbelief, atheists, agnostics, but also some people in faith, in Christian circles, don't believe that a man who was flesh and bone actually died, was really buried, and was really raised to life by the power of the Spirit. And you need to be aware of that, that some in Christian circles today view this idea of resurrection as merely symbolic. Maybe you have friends who don't believe in the resurrection. Maybe you have family members. I have friends and family that don't believe in the resurrection. And for some of you, that's a daily struggle. For others of you, you're hearing about this for the first time, and it's causing more problems and questions than you previously had a minute ago. And so how do we know? How do we know that Jesus really physically resurrected? Well, within the Bible, we believe the testimony that he appeared to Mary Magdalene, We believe that he appeared to his mother Mary, Joanna, the two men on the road to Emmaus, his disciples twice, once with Thomas and once without. According to 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to 500 people at once. He appeared to his brother James, and he also appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road. But I would challenge you, when faced with that question from others or even within your own heart, not to say, because the Bible says so. When that question arises, don't say, because it's in the Bible. Because people who don't believe in the resurrection don't also believe in the power of the Word of God. And so that's a self-defeating response. Well, maybe you think, well, let's look to historical evidence. Let's, Let's find the town, and this is where the hill is, and this is where the empty grave is. And you know what? That would be great if we could find it. We're still not 100% sure of its exact location. But I think the greatest proof of the resurrection is summed up in this sentence. No one dies for a lie. I looked up what goes into an FBI interrogation, because you can find anything on the internet. 
There are some interrogations that last 15 to 20 hours, sometimes even days long. You need to be prepared with a good understanding of the facts. There's information games and tactics used to trick your subject into giving away information. There's the good cop, bad cop routine. There are deals made at specific times to elicit incentives. And this is all done to obtain information in our modern context. But I doubt the Inquisition and centuries of angry mobs and juries and governmental systems had the same tactics or the same patience when asking if Jesus had really risen from the dead. Instead, they utilized torture mechanisms, methods of pain, family massacre, sometimes even crucifixion, upon the confession of Jesus' resurrection from the dead from these rebellious bandits that we now call heroes of our faith. But again, no one dies for a lie. I love this quote by Norman Geisler. He says, why would the apostles lie? Liars always lie for selfish reasons. If they lied, what was their motive? What did they get out of it? What they got out of it was misunderstanding, rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom. Hardly a list of perks. No one dies to keep a lie alive. You're going to tell me, the proverbial you, you're going to imply that the martyrs, Jesus' apostles, his own brothers, the men and women of the faith, the missionaries, all these people are keeping alive the biggest hoax in history? Giving away their finances, their lives, their reputations for a lie? The biggest case for the resurrection is not an empty tomb. It's the gospel. The men and women who have heard it, accepted it, and been transformed by it, including you and I for over 2,000 years, laying down our agendas, our possessions, and our lives. You know, I'm in the marketing field professionally, and I also, also host a podcast on the side. Do you know how hard it is to market an idea? For people to connect to it, to adopt it as their own, to get excited about it, and then tell other people about it? It's really hard. I spend my nights looking at best practices for Instagram and, and platforms to generate people to my content. And you know what? In 2021, it's not simple. But there is something I have found that works 100% of the time. Authenticity. And why am I telling you this? Well, I don't think the disciples would have generated a following that lasts over 2,000 years if it wasn't true. If they weren't convinced of it as fact. If it wasn't real. We believe that the resurrection of Jesus is real. Because if it's not, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. If he simply died and didn't resurrect, conquering sin and death, then we're still separated from God. That's a terrifying thought. There's no point in me speaking. There's no point in you listening. And you have empty belief. Because a Jesus that is still buried in the grave is not one that can make any impact on my life today. A dead Jesus can't give abundant life like he claimed. A dead Jesus can't offer living water. A dead Jesus can't offer forgiveness of sins, past, present, or future. You see, it takes a living Savior to offer new life. And this is the hope that we have 
the center, the foundation of our faith, and the point of the life that we now live is because of and in the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And now this focal point of our Christian faith is not a one-and-done event that merely happened in the past. It's a present reality that transcends time. The resurrection is not just a past event. It is a present and active process. Because of Jesus's resurrection, we then and now are resurrected. Yes, spiritually, but also in every other way possible. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Starting at verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of the curse of sin, everything is dead. Your mind, your emotions, your soul, your flesh, your desires, your good works, your you name it, it's all dead. And because of the resurrection, all of these things have now been made alive. But how have they been made alive? In Christ. When we read through the New Testament, we see that phrase show up a lot of times. In Christ, through Christ, by Christ. And what that's speaking of is the power of the resurrection. So this isn't the closing chapter in the life of Jesus before he ascends. This is the end of the prelude and the continuation of your story. The verses that speak of in Christ are speaking to the present daily reality of the resurrection in your life and mine. Here's a few examples. Romans 3.24, all believers are justified and made upright and in right standing with God freely and gratuitously by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. We love this one, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. These verses are speaking about the power of the resurrection and how it plays out in your life. You see, it's a present and daily reminder that this is an ongoing miracle. And so how does this apply to us now? What's different about our lives because of the resurrection? What does it bring to our everyday life? Well, the resurrection turns obstacles into opportunities. The resurrection turns obstacles into opportunities. Elena and I are watching 80s movies all summer long. And some are great. And some are not. But one of the greatest ones that I love so much is Back to the Future. And we watched it recently, and there's this scene where Marty McFly needs to go back and tell Doc Brown something that could potentially alter his life forever. And he's frustrated, and he says, man, I wish I had more time. And he says, wait a minute, I'm sitting in a DeLorean time machine. I've got all the time I need. You see, what was once impossible is now possible because of a new reality. And in the same way, the resurrection of Jesus now presents a new reality 
on our lives. Things that were once impossible are now possible because death, the ultimate adversary, has been defeated. And so death in any other way also is defeated. Death to us spiritually, death to us physically, death to us emotionally, no longer has the last word because of the power of the resurrection. Here's an example. We mentioned before that a man named Jairus had a daughter. It's mentioned in Mark chapter 5, and she's sick. And Jesus is going with Jairus because he believes in the power of healing through Jesus. You see, Jairus has hope. And on the way there, someone comes from the house and says, Don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter is dead. And Jesus says, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she'll be healed. And they arrive and they, heal pe they hear people mourning and wailing. And Jesus says this. He says, stop wailing. She is not dead, but asleep. You see, Jesus is saying things that are, are actually not. What you think is an obstacle in your situation is not an obstacle, but it's actually an opportunity for the power of the resurrection. Something that isn't alive is being called to life by Jesus. But check out what it says in the next verse. It says, they laughed at him knowing she was dead. If the Bible was written today, you'd see a footnote that says, insert sarcasm. <laughs> you see, people who don't believe in the resurrection laugh at what God is trying to do because they don't see the opportunity, they see the obstacle. And it makes sense, right? How silly it is to tell someone that something as permanent as death is not a period, but a comma in the life of someone when you've never experienced resurrection before in your life. But church, we have experienced resurrection, and yet we do this all the time because we forget the power of the resurrection. You see, there's no reason to hope in something you don't believe to be possible. And when we realize the power of the resurrection, that it's not just a past event, but it is a present reality, until we believe in that event as the source of our power and our lives presently, we won't look at things with hope. We won't look at things with opportunity. All we'll see is obstacles. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 19? He says, with God, all things are possible. And so because of the resurrection, we don't see things with obstacles. We see things as opportunities. So that relationship you're in that will never move past where it is, that's possible because of the resurrection. That marriage that's on the brink of divorce, it's possible because of the resurrection. That custody battle with your neighbors, that cancer diagnosis, your bad temper, your past addictions, your mistakes, you name it, it's all possible because of the power of the resurrection. Now, that doesn't mean we just get whatever we want because we slap on the bumper sticker of new life. But what that does mean is that we conduct ourselves with hope, knowing that the worst possible situation has already happened and it's been defeated. And like we said, when Jesus says something, we take it as reality. And Jesus says in John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. Not just then, but now. And so we looked at the resurrection in the past, we see how it's an active process in the present, and so then we have to do some deduction. If there's a past aspect and a present reality, the implication is that there's a future component as well. And I think it's important, before we touch on this topic of future resurrection, 
we have to address the elephant in the room, and it's this. What happens to us when we die? What happens to us when we die? Well, I think we'd all very quickly say, well, we go to heaven. But that idea, that very American idea of going to an ethereal floaty plane with cherubs and angels is not one that's ever propagated by Jesus. It's not found in the early church doctrine. It's not in the Apostles' Creed. It's not found anywhere specifically in Scripture. And so I want to be clear. I'm not saying that heaven doesn't exist. I am not saying heaven doesn't exist. But if you were to simply read the Bible cover to cover and reject all other sort of commentary and input and other information, the words within Scripture never point to a heaven that we hear about today. And so we ask, well, where did that idea come from then? I think that idea that we go to heaven is a mix of understandings. You know, we think John 14, where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. We think 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body and present with the Lord. Maybe we think paradise, as Jesus mentioned to the thief on the cross. Maybe we mix in some revelation imagery and end times eschatology. We've also infused contemporary writings like Left Behind and Dante's Inferno and other apocalyptic literature. But the problem with all of that is that it has context. And so if we cherry pick them, if we put together a new theology that isn't biblical, we're misleading not only others, but ourselves. You see, Jesus doesn't talk about heaven. Not, not the way we do, at least. And Paul doesn't talk about it either. What they both do talk about is resurrection. 1 Corinthians 6.14, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Jesus speaks of the resurrection of the dead in Matthew 22 and John 5, verse 28. Paul also mentions it in 1 Corinthians 15.52 that the dead will be raised. And I think this idea of life after death, thinking about life after death and crafting an ideal of heaven is very natural. And we do this because as humans, we need comfort in the loss of those we love and the unknown life after. I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's a bad thing. We need comfort. We need hope. But Paul never commands us to take hope and comfort in the fact that our final destination is in heaven. What he does command us to take hope in is the resurrection. Let's read it in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Be encouraged by the resurrection. I think not only of the resurrection of Jesus, not only of the resurrection because of Jesus, but of the resurrection 
to Jesus. And my point this morning is not to leave you despairing and confused. We don't know exactly where the life after is, and I don't think we're supposed to. But the thing we do know is what? That there is a life after, and that life after involves resurrection. So what happens to us when we die? What does the Bible say about life after this one? Resurrection. I don't know how it will look, and I don't know much more. Neither do you. But I do know we'll be with Jesus, and I do know we'll be resurrected. And, and, and why is it so important that we discuss such an unknown? Why is it so important that we discuss the idea of resurrection? Well, like we mentioned, the past, the present, and the future are all connected. This idea that a resurrection is coming connects to our present resurrection now, because it changes how we see the world. If you think that what you do here doesn't matter, that this place is all going to burn and all I need to do is run out the clock, well, that's an annihilationist viewpoint and I think you misunderstand your purpose in following Jesus. You say, well, what is my purpose in following Jesus? It's to spread resurrection. It's to spread the message that resurrection is possible through the power of the gospel. What we do here matters. Understanding our eternal destination correctly places a higher calling on us. So we're not just witnessing to people so they avoid hell. We're inviting people to be a part of the past, present, and future resurrection that God has done, is doing, and will one day do again. We're not just spreading the gospel. We're spreading the resurrection. And isn't that so much fuller? Isn't that so much more robust, more inviting of a message that we preach Christ crucified? We preach the resurrection, past, present, and future. Again, to sum it up, the resurrection is a past event, changing present circumstances that have future implications. And we don't often pause and think about this idea of resurrection. Yeah, we muse on the past tense of it more around Easter time. The future sense we sort of touch on, unfortunately, when we're at funerals. And I fear we miss it altogether in our daily lives. And so I want us to try something in our closing moments. You know, sermons are often oratory exercises. Someone speaks, you listen. They're like spiritual TED Talks. And they're great, but they engage the left hemisphere of your brain the part with language and logic and analysis and facts. But the right side of your brain controls creativity, feelings, emotions, art, music. And I want us to attempt to be holistic in how we approach the resurrection using our whole entire brain. And so we're going to play a piece of music, and I'd like us to engage with it. If you feel comfortable, you can close your eyes. You can just listen to the music and meditate on this idea of the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection in our lives because of Jesus, and what it will be like to be resurrected to God.
Lord Jesus, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the power that comes through you laying down your life and rising again. We pray that we would engage in this subject more holistically, that we would see the resurrection not just as a past event, but as a present reality, that one day we will be resurrected to you and in your presence. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen.